Season one of Secrets of the Most Productive People has come to an end. And before we start up the second season, we want to hear what you think about the show. To take our five-minute audience survey, go to fastcompany.com slash survey slash podcast or click the link in this episode show note. Plus, as a thank you for taking the survey, you'll be entered to win a $50 gift card. Go to fastcompany.com slash survey slash podcast or click the link in this episode show note. We've really enjoyed making the podcast and we're looking forward to bringing you more great productivity content in season two. The producer is sitting right here and she's going to like give me faces if she's like, do that line over again. But hopefully it'll be pretty smooth. Hello and welcome to a special live episode of Secrets of the Most Productive People, a podcast where we try to figure out how to work smarter instead of harder and dissect exactly how to get it all done. We are recording this episode live at the Fast Company Innovation Festival. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. And I'm Fast Company Assistant Editor Anissa Purbasari horden So in our jobs, we cover a lot of things about productivity and work life for Fast Company, and we come across a lot of information about how people do their best work. Sometimes those informations are not necessarily true. So today we're going to bust some of the biggest myths about productivity and we have two experts here to help us. So first I'd like to introduce Scott Barry Kaufman, who's a psychologist at Barnard College, Columbia University, whose research centers on the mind, brain and behavior. Dr. Kaufman has a PhD in cognitive psychology from Yale University and an MPhil in experimental psychology from the University of Cambridge and is also the host of the psychology podcast. Welcome. You're barely qualified to be here, though. I mean, <laughs> uh, we also have with us Laura Vanderkam, who loyal listeners may remember from an episode previous uh, in this season. Laura is the author of several time management and productivity books, including 168 Hours, You Have More Time Than You Think, and most recently, Off the Clock, How to Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done. She is also the co-host of a podcast, Best of Both Worlds, and a regular Fast Company contributor. All right, first myth that we're going to bust. Let's bust it. It is morning people are more productive than night owls. Okay, so some of our most popular productivity articles are about how to train yourself to get up early. It's the prevailing wisdom that morning people get more done than night owls. I'd love to hear from both of you. First, why do you think that is? And second, is there any truth to it? You know, I have this, like, nuanced answer in the sense that, like, individual differences... Yes and no, right? <laughs> well, like, it matters who you are. Individual differences really matter a lot. You know, like, personality matters, and you kind of have to, like, know yourself. Why, why, do we, why do you think it is that people think that morning people are more productive? Well, so morning people do tend to score better on tests as kids. They then do better in school as well. They tend to uh, get better jobs because of this. But it's not that they're better people. Um, It's just that the way the world is set up rewards people who are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in that 8 a.m. class or in that 8 a.m. meeting. Your boss sees you, you look like a go-getter. He doesn't see you at 11 p.m. doing your best work, and so you don't get that sort of FaceTime value of, of looking like a good person. Um, so it's not that morning people are better people. It's the world is set up to reward them. That's it. A lot of people are in the middle. Um, and, and for many people, the, the truth of that myth is that it becomes um, easier to sort of do things that are important to you in the morning 
Um, because it's a great time you can have for yourself before everybody else wants a piece of you, both at work and at home. So if you want to exercise, for instance, you can tell yourself like, oh yes, I'll exercise after work. And then all of a sudden your 5 p.m. meeting is running long and you're racing to get the train to get home. Or, you know, you come home and the kids need something, you know, and so your evening workout doesn't happen. In, in the morning, that's slightly less likely to happen. Most emergencies haven't really arisen by 6 a.m. Uh, so, so it could be a great time for doing those things that are important to you. A lot of people do tell me, well, I'm not a morning person. And sure, there are plenty of people who are night owls. But the best way to tell is if you are sort of doing your best creative work at night. That's awesome. Um, a lot of people, when they say I'm not a morning person, what they mean is that they're tired in the morning. But that is a very different matter, right? That is because you are staying up too late, you know, hitting next in the Netflix queue or the you know, two-hour Instagram bender. And if that's you, I'm not, not saying anyone in this room is, is you. But if it is, you know, you might want to cut that off earlier and go to bed earlier. Isn't it also, you know, we, we had an episode about willpower and how it kind of depletes through the day. And I, I think it's also you do better work sometimes in the morning because you're not as motivated at night. Like, you're more motivated maybe in the morning to do the workout than you are after work, it's so, like, I know I feel like I deserve to sit on the couch after work, you know? I definitely think there's, there's something to that. I, I think research has shown different things in terms of whether your willpower is depleted over the day. Um, you, your energy definitely declines after you've been doing a lot of stuff, right? I mean, that makes total sense. So if you could do stuff later in the day, but you'd have to actively add to your energy levels before you would be able to do it. Whereas in the morning, most people tend to wake up, you know, have that first cup of coffee, and then they feel like they can conquer the world. And, um, okay, so this one's for you, Scott. I'm seeing this was a myth that we were going to bust about willpower, and we we're going to ask you about it, that willpower is finite. Um, yeah, so there's some recent research suggesting that it uh, isn't finite, as at least as finite as we thought it was when we looked at like a lot, like many more studies than have been looked at before. Uh, and I think that's good news in a sense because it suggests that we can probably push through more than we think we can. So like obviously the feeling of it being limited is very real. Like we all like know that feeling of like I've reached my you know point of I cannot go any further. But maybe the good news is there is actually like. That's kind of a myth we're telling ourselves. That's a story we've told ourselves in that moment that we just it's like an excuse we're making. Yeah, yeah, it's like I'm done. You know, like days over, right? But we can actually persevere. But um, I wanted to talk about like what we just talked about uh, the topic we're just talking about because it seems like the type of task you're doing matters. So um, I study creativity, and it's it interestingly enough, it seems like if you wait to do your most creative work later in the day when you're actually a little fatigued, your creativity is better than if you'd start off right in the morning trying to be creative because um, you can get st you can get stuck in like if, if you're in this hyper like I'm getting things done mode that's actually not conducive to certain aspects of creativity so the morning is better to do more like deep thinking heavy like, yeah. analytical work and the evening's better for yeah. like creative work like load yourself up with information with knowledge things that you maybe want to be creatively connected and then let your brain, you know, like actually have the work, your subconscious mind have the work to connect those dots in interesting ways. Yeah. So I want to move on to, this is kind of related, there's also a productivity myth that says that you should do your most difficult task in the morning because that's the only way to feel accomplished. So can you just talk about how that relates to creativity and the different types of work and where that myth comes from? I mean, it, it's not bad advice to try and do your most difficult thing first, but I think the key thing is you want to 
um, make sure that you are doing important stuff first. If you are the sort of person who has a lot of discipline and energy and focus in the morning, which is probably most people, um, that that is their best time for that sort of thing, then you want to do something that is worthy of that. Um, and, you know, a lot of people get to work and they just start dealing with email for like the first hour and then you've kind of wasted that precious first hour dealing with stuff that you actually could have done at 2.30 in the afternoon, uh, whereas you won't be able to do that sort of deep thinking at 2.30 in the afternoon when you're exhausted. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be the most like difficult or unpleasant task. I would say it'd be something you really want to do. Right? Maybe it's some, you want to uh, write a report on a topic that you know, nobody's been thinking of you as an expert on before, but you would really like to be an expert in that field. Well, that would be a great thing to do in that first hour. Um, I don't say it's necessarily unpleasant and difficult. It's probably fun because you want to be in that field. Um, but it's whatever is important to you that will probably get crowded out in the rest of the day. I think if you do something, just a, anything small that makes you feel like you're in charge of the day can actually set you on a good path. Like people try and understand why is exercise so good in the morning, you know, like, and when you actually get down to it, it's something that's generalizable because when you're going to the gym, you've like, you're like, I'm like, I'm overcoming a challenge today. Like even if it's a little challenge, it's amazing how much that shifts your mindset for the day. It, yeah, so it sounds like this is kind of a spin on the myth, which is the myth is do the difficult thing because then the rest of your day will feel easy. And what you're, both of you are saying are do do an important thing because then you'll you'll be buoyed for the rest of the day that you like. It's yeah, you I'm, the kind, I'm the kind of person who can do important things, yeah, and, and then sure. that takes you through the rest of the day. That's still the story you're telling yourself, even you know if the rest of the day kind of falls apart. Okay, I got I got another big myth here. Inbox zero is essential to productivity. Now, in an earlier episode of the podcast, I said that they, I think there are two types of people in the world. Uh, those who have over a thousand unread emails in their uh, inbox and those who get anxious just thinking about that. And new listeners know which one Kate is and which one I am. Yeah, it's like figure out personality type, right? But um, first, which one are you? And um, second, is striving for inbox zero or something close to it important? I feel like I'm constantly playing whack-a-mole, you know, with with it, and um, so I think I'm probably in that latter category, and I would love to not be so much the, controlled the anxious by. For... I feel like I'm constantly like inbox zero, yeah, yeah, like I'm gonna go party now, and there's like five more emails, you know, just popped <laughs> up. Exactly it's like I forget about it, right? Um, how can you teach me how That's to uh, change you how to my, not care? Yeah, not, yeah be <laughs> like I'm going is. out no matter what. Like, like yeah, because it doesn't matter. Like the vast majority of it has has nothing to do with so like true. anything that will matter to you in two years. So, so true. it's it's sort of. Um, yeah, I'm I'm it, I inbox forty thousand maybe <laughs> at the moment, see, uh, which I'm is some bad. people out there are like, oh, <laughs> I, I see I see people just cringe. It, oh yeah, um, but I mean the honest truth is. Email is a tool to do your job. It is not your job. It is a tool to do your job. And we know that what can be measured tends to be the things that get managed. And, and so who knows if I made progress on my most important professional and personal goals today. But I know for sure that I got down from 150 unread messages to 25. So go me, right? Yeah, it's like a literal... It's, it's a literal manifestation of like crossing things off your to-do list. It, it, it does yeah. feel that way. But I mean, you know, it's it's not going to say on your tombstone, like she deleted all her emails. I mean, you know. That's I, what I want to be remembered, remembered for. <laughs> so, biggest accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's a tool to do your job. You want to be remembered for the things you actually do. So focus on those things. Use email as it supports you in that goal. So do you think people like me are obsessed with, not obsessed, but like find Inbox Zero important because of that sense of accomplishment? 
Um, I think there's something to it. I also do think you're on to the idea of there being two different personality categories that some people, visual clutter in general bothers yeah. them a lot and other people it doesn't at all. Um, and, and you should know who you are because if it's going to bother you so much that you don't have inbox zero, that you can't get anything else done, well, you probably need to go address that. I might encourage you to think differently uh, about it and maybe evolve over time, like not answer something and see if earth crashes into the sun, but well, I, uh, you know, probably it won't. I think, I think it maybe speaks to uh, different organizational systems. Like I would have a lot of trouble finding the important emails in a 40,000 inbox situation. Well, most of them don't matter anymore. Like I'm not I dealing would, like, with you know, yeah, I'm, I'm anything more of a under delight, about like, the top 50 of that. It's just, I've decided it's, you know, it's not worth archiving, going through, deleting. I, I didn't oh, I'm a big care. deleter. Yeah. I just don't even care. I think care. there's like a deeper issue here. Like, you know, like, are you, a, <laughs> you know, I can say that. Psychoanalyst. Yeah. <laughs> are you like, you know, are you a people pleaser or not? I think there's a deeper issue here because I've been trying to overcome my deep, my people pleasing tendencies because I get so many emails of, on a daily basis with like, hey, like maybe it's like a high school student. Hey, will you like write my thesis for me? Like, you know, oh, hey, I'm a <laughs> Will you write student. my thesis yeah, for I get, me? I get Just the, go straight with the request. Well, and obviously I'm not going to do that, but I, like, see, I for, get. What's oh, a fee? Or like, hey, can I pick your brain? I get that all the time. Can I pick your brain? You know, That's a really I that phrase. phrase yeah. yeah but the like the nurturing part of me right is like it's hard for me to just um say oh n it, these people don't matter you know what i mean so i feel like when we talk about the actual content of the emails it's harder for me to just to to like say you know like that doesn't matter today at least you know i don't have a problem thinking things don't matter i just have a problem with the visual clutter of it yeah yeah, yeah. So since we're talking about email, and emails brings us a lot of stress, I feel mm -hmm. like it's an appropriate time to start talking about the next myth, which is that stress is bad for productivity. Uh, Scott, I'd love to hear what you think about this, because it's a pretty commonly held belief that stress is really bad for us, but then there's also research that shows that some form of stress is good for us, and we have to learn to determine between productive stress and unproductive stress. What do you have to say to that? You know, it's all about the framing. I mean, like, for some people, what is, uh, like, the objective, what is objective, what does stress mean, you know? Like, for some people can go through the exact same physiological reaction of, like, wow, there's so much stuff going on and feed off that energy, right? Whereas someone else has the same feeling and is like, oh, my gosh, I can't handle today. Um, so I think all the sort of techniques I've seen suggest there is this kind of, um, it's like an inverted U-shaped curve, you know? There is, like, like too little stress, you know, and you're just, like, not going to be motivated to do anything thing in your your life but like too much stress um objectively is is no good but in that middle room if you can reframe it reframe that feeling as as like um excitement you know um like you know we actually can relabel our emotions you know that we're i mean meditation is really good at, at, at helping us to objectively just um be with what we are and also, it's amazing. People who are good at uh, at really sitting with these negative emotions or, or sitting with these uncomfortable emotions um, are actually more productive, you know, because they're, um, you know, it's kind of like motivating them in a way. I think I think that's true in the in the framing of of how you look at your stress. Um, we did a a panel here the other day about happiness at work and we were talking about like stress that makes you happy because you feel lucky to do it you feel like you're working on your passion and you're really overloaded and you're stressed but you're not it's not negative yeah yeah, yeah. um well that 
relates to the idea of um, some people, so here's a myth, that some people are more productive or that you're just naturally more productive under pressure. Uh, we hear all the time, I work better under pressure, um, I can't get things done unless it's the rush in the last final few minutes. Why do people feel that way and what happens in your brain that maybe motivates you to, or is that totally wrong? People think that they are productive under pressure. Well, you know, it just relates so much to the question you just asked me. I mean, it really is a framing issue of am I under pressure? Am I, um, you know, the prefrontal cortex is, is this area of our brain that is associated with our ability to kind of like control and, um, and, and, and hold lots of things in working memory. And, you know, if we're stressed or are really... Our, our attention narrows and uh, very significantly. So I think so much of that framing issue is to try to get out of that um, that extraordinarily narrow framing of what we're experiencing or what is going on in our environment. I would say it gets at the the procrastination idea, which I, I know we were going to talk about maybe at some point, but uh, um, just to bring it in, I, I think a lot of procrastination is about people. Um, they think they're doing their best work at the last possible minute, but what it is is they've finally sort of gotten over that perfectionism that's kind of holding them back from doing stuff earlier. Um, and, and so by doing it at that last minute, you, you get over that voice that's telling you, oh, it's not good enough, but also like you have to get it done. And so if it wasn't good, well, you know, we're doing it in the last possible minute, so that's why it's not good. It's not that you weren't good at it in the first place or whatever. So I, I think there's all those things sort of play into this idea, whereas it takes a lot of courage to actually just put something out there and do it and do a bad job of it first, but have people look at it and come back to it and build in time to think about it and come back to it some more and then get more feedback on it and then get it out there. I mean, it takes a lot of courage to do that, but it tends to be more effective. Well, so since you brought it up, oh, you got, you got yeah, something? Yeah, yeah I, I, there's a famous P- Picasso quote, like, I don't know where I'm going until I get there. And I think we have to kind of allow ourselves um, the possibility that things will emerge without, like, setting it up in advance and kind of, like, embracing the fact when there's all this chaos going on that actually a lot of creativity lives in the chaos. So I just want to say that. And, and that's maybe why people feel more creative in the the last few minutes that it's more chaotic and, and yeah and uh, you know the the also you know your prefrontal cortex is a little bit like when you're fatigued that can, that can actually be a good thing right like just for the same reason like there's research showing that if you drink one and a half glasses of wine you're more likely to think creatively it's the same reason I've heard that before <laughs> yeah it's good for your you know your your floodgates to be down a little bit you know just not too much you yeah. Know, but, yeah yeah, yeah. it's a finely calibrated point because I think like one point yeah. seven five glasses of wine <laughs> then, like, then it all is happening yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, I'm already bit. a bad speller I'm not going to be editing stories on after drinking, yeah. Um, well, since we mentioned it, let's address uh, procrastination. So here's a myth that we think is a myth. Let's see. All forms of procrastination are bad. One thing that most people believe about productivity is that procrastination is always bad, and we have to figure out how to stop doing it by any means necessary. Is that true? And are there times when procrastination can be good? So I'll talk about this a little. I, I think um, people are thinking of slightly different things in terms of what exactly procrastination is. Because in, in the def- definition that I've seen of it, it is 
delaying activity even though you know you will be worse off for the delay. So if you're building into the definition that you are worse off for the delay, then it's hard to see how it can be a good thing because you've just acknowledged that I'm worse off because I just did this. Um, that said, not everything needs to be done immediately. Um, there, there is much to be said for putting off something that is not particularly important or urgent, you know, and, and doing it at some later time just because something shows up in your inbox, for instance, doesn't mean it needs to be addressed immediately. Um, just because somebody asks you to do something doesn't mean it needs to be done immediately. Um, so, you know, it's good to assign things a time. Um, but we're talking about, you know, long-term projects. We mentioned this earlier. Like, you're probably better off getting started doing a little bit then, then stepping back, then doing a little bit more, thinking about it, doing a little bit more, building in a buffer before the end. So if something goes wrong, you can deal with that in, in the buffer. Um, I think it's also important to ask yourself why you're putting something off. Uh, because sometimes that's giving you a valuable bit of self-knowledge, uh, that it's something you really don't want to do, not because it's, you know, you're weak-willed or something, but it's just not the right direction for your career or life. And if that is the case, that is definitely worth listening to. It doesn't mean it gets you out of it this time. Um, but it may be that you need to figure out how in the future, like maybe in the next six to 12 months, you can get yourself to a place where you're not having to do this thing that you're so uh, opposed to. Yeah, I'm going to say something that's going to make people feel good about themselves. Um, so uh, if you reframe procrastination as incubation, then it's no big deal. It's a good thing. It's I'm, a good thing. I'm incubating like crazy <laughs> because you know, on Facebook right now. Because <laughs> like again, like my perspective, I, I come from is creativity, and you know that's what I've written on. And creativity requires, in fact, it actually requires um, moments of downtime uh, where your brain is not mentally taxed. You know, so that you you know allow all these associations. We did a study with Hans Grohe showerheads. I'm not like trying to like promote them when I say that, but we did the study. We found that most people reported um, great ideas in the shower than they did at work. You know, it's crazy, right? <laughs> but it's like you know, it's like uh, that, it was like the mind wandering. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I really love the way you said that because you know our research has shown that daydreaming and creativity are really strongly linked. So I would almost reframe the whole thing. You know. So how do you know if it's something you should incubate and something when it's just, as Laura was saying before, you're doing something that you're going to be worst off if you do them at the last minute? How do you differentiate between the two? Well, the psychologists do just differentiate between what are called analytical problems and insight kind of problems. So our analytical problems are things that you know have a very um, a set sequence of things that you know that you have to get done and that you can get through, whereas insight problems are problems where you... Um, you, you reach an impasse, and it's not obvious what the next step is. So when you've, you can kind of like, you know, like there's no set rules for this, but if you're going through your course of your day and you reach a point in your work where you're like, I think I've reached an impasse, um, that's a just, it's, this is an insight problem that I'm working on. I'm going to take a shower <laughs> or play ping pong or whatever. Or have that glass and a half of wine. Or, yeah, and I, then the ideas will I be do. flowing, yeah. <laughs> I, do, I do like that you're framing, Laura, that procrastination can be good in that it tells you what's important and what's not important. Because that's true. If you're avoiding doing something, it's like, well, how important is that thing to you? Yeah, maybe it's something you don't need to be doing long term, and, and you should pay attention to that. All right. Well, this is another myth. This is tailored for you, Laura. Uh, myth, the, most successful, or the more successful you become, the busier you will be, and the harder you will have to work for a work-life balance. 
Whenever we see someone who's at the top of their game and super successful, they always seem to be doing a million things. It can feel intimidating for those of us who aspire to a similar position. Laura, you've studied how successful people spend their time. Do people, in fact, get busier the more successful they become? And the million-dollar question, is work-life balance possible for people who are successful in their careers? Oh, I de- yeah, I definitely think work-life balance is, is possible for people who are successful in their careers. Um, I don't like the idea of balance because it's like, pitting one against the other, that one goes up, the other has to go down. But definitely people have space for personal priorities in their lives, even when they are successful. And I think the two actually feed on each other. I, I wouldn't even put even though, you know, the two can go together. Um, what You said when you become more successful, you become busier. What that is, what is happening is there are more demands on your time, but it does not logically follow that you must then be more busy because you may be able to tell those people no. What I think sort of distinguishes the people who are successful who do have time for their personal priorities is that they have taken advantage of that autonomy and power they have to be very careful about what is allowed onto their calendar. Say, yes, demand for my time is through the roof, but that doesn't mean I have to meet that demand. I can have a certain amount of space available for these things and, and say no to other things. Uh, but, you know, even just through time diary studies, you, you see that there's space for other things. There was a recent um, CEO time diary project that came out, uh, and they had their, their assistants track their time um, for the week so that they could actually get... Well, first of all, they had assistants. Well, they had assistants, which is, which is key, but many people do and don't use them. It's, it's interesting how many people have not managed to successfully leverage that relationship in order to make their lives calmer and better. But that is something, the, if you get very successful, if you're a CEO, you probably do have an assistant, yeah, which is you something have somebody, you don't have access to earlier on. Yeah, which, you know, somebody who can help you with this, somebody who's helping to control. And if you share with your, that person your priorities, they can help make sure that your calendar reflects that. But they were working about um, 62 hours a week on average is what I think the, the number was, which there are 168 hours in a week. So 62 hours is not actually all your hours. Uh, even if you're sleeping seven, eight hours a night, that's still, you know, 50-some for other things. Uh, so, they're, you know, they were doing other things. It is it's still possible. Well, that's the, the quote that gets bandied around all the time is you spend most of your waking hours at work. You don't. <laughs> and, yeah, you, that's a myth busted right here. Buster you Elon don't. Musk. Well, you know, so, well, we, so there's we all what happened happened there. 168 hours in a week. So it, it, if you work... If you sleep 56, that would be eight hours a night, which a lot of people claim not to do. But if you were sleeping eight hours a night, you would have to work 56 hours in order to have, you know, half of your waking hours be working. And most people actually don't. When you have them keep track of it over the long term, the numbers tend to be under that. All right. I got another myth, unless you got another myth. Uh, I do, but I think you should go with your myth first. Okay. Here's my myth. Scott. Some people are naturally good multitaskers. Many people believe that they are good at multitasking, but they aren't actually. How do our brains handle multitasking? And when, if ever, should we multitask? And how can we fight our natural tendency to do more than one thing at a time? Yeah, so like from a creativity perspective, again, multitasking is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's, uh, you know, having lots of ideas up in the air at one time or lots of projects up there at one time can um, actually increase the chances that you'll start to see connections that you never thought of before. Um, the key is how can you manage your multitasking in the best way? So it's not that multitasking is necessarily good or bad, but how can you manage it? People who are really good at uh, harnessing the power of multitasking are actually really good at um, singularly focusing on one task at a time, even though they're glo- more globally multitasking, if so, that makes yeah, sense. So, so yeah. sounds like you're making a differentiation between having a lot of things going on and actually doing a lot of That's things right. at 
one time. At once, yeah. I mean, people who... It's it's not good from a like again like a prefrontal cortex kind of like um, working memory perspective to have five hundred things in your head at one time like I do right now <laughs> you know like it's like you know it's like hard you know to to do that it's hard to like um, to really focus on what you're trying to do yeah so I, I think most people will be better off trying to do one thing at once you know you have a lot of projects going on but focus on one for a while take a break and then go do another project and take a break and go do another project the, the key is to push through long enough to get a reasonable amount done before you take that break um, and that's where people run into trouble because they're you know trying to look on their phones at the same time they're doing something else one thing I found helpful you know put the phone somewhere else <laughs> I mean completely uh, elsewhere um, so it's not a temptation or, or at least put it in airplane mode if you happen to be looking at the time on it or something like that um, and, and then just keep like a little notebook next to you. So if you're, for instance, you picture this, you're like working on a computer, let's say at your desk. Um, put the phone elsewhere or, or turn it off or put it in airplane mode. Put a little notebook next to you. Because while you're working on one thing, you're going to get ideas for something else. You'll be like, oh, I should look that up or I should call so-and-so or I should, you know, it's, this brain is all over the place. That's why you have like all those tabs open. So, like I'll just like yeah, flip over yeah, to that. And that then, yeah. you know, so just write it down in the notebook and you'll get to it later. Like you don't need to look up that Greek restaurant right now. You know, it, it, you're doing something else. And, and if you sort of get yourself in the habit of saying, okay, I saw that that thought came in, I've read it down, I will deal with it later, uh, then you can focus. You can't focus forever. Like, very few people can focus more than, I don't know, an hour, a little bit more on one thing with no that break. That seems a long time yeah, as well. Yeah. well 20 minutes, Yeah, apparently. there's that method, the Pomodoro, Pomodoro method, where you set yeah. the timer for 20 minutes and just work for that amount of time because if you work for longer, then you... Yeah. I mean, that can work for very straightforward tasks. I think there's some things that you're sort of deeper into, um, more, maybe you can talk about this, the more creative work that uh, you, you kind of have to push yourself into for a while, but uh, it depends on the kind of task. I had a discussion with Cal Newport about this. He uh, has this great uh, work, he calls it deep work, you know, and he is the master of this. He really is, and the way he schedules his life, and we, kind of, we actually had a debate about this, like, is that conducive to creativity or not and I thought you know I was like I took the contrarian view where I was like you know I know you keep promoting deep work but you know like it sounds like boring work to me you know <laughs> and he, so he was and he's a really cool guy so he's a really cool person so he like he, he took that in a good spirit and we had a great hour-long chat about this um, I think the key is flexibility in your day that's the key that's what meditation practices help you with that's what um, attention um, is you want to be able to have all of these skill sets and you want to have the cognitive control or the overall executive function to be able to decide what task am I working on right now and what's going to be conducive to that. Because deep work is, is very conducive to a lot of productivity, but a lot of productivity is not creativity. You know, it's not. So there's different, different aims and just flexibility, I think, is what's important. Right, before we open it up to audience question, I want to know, are there any productivity myths that we haven't talked about that either of you want to bust? Like, what really annoys you that people are like, this is true, and you're like, it's not true at all. That it's like either nature or nurture, that's what I always get. Right? People are always like, is it, you're either, are you, are you born, or is, is productivity made? You know, it's not an order. Oh, like, I'm just a naturally yeah, organized yeah. person. I, and, yeah, oh, and yeah, people use it as an yeah. excuse, right? Like, oh, you're so good at that because you're just naturally good at spreadsheets. I'm like, yes, I was born to make spreadsheets. <laughs> born to yeah. make spreadsheets. Yeah. It's yeah. funny how that's evolutionarily wired in. I, who knew? Yeah. <laughs> Excel would be there from the get-go. Yeah. Yes, no, no. Um, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't like 
this idea of, of the harsh trade-offs that everyone talks about, like, oh, you know, what we talked about, the work-life, that you, if you're going to succeed, you're going to have to sacrifice something. And people love these stories of, like, the, the entrepreneur's dilemma, like, five things, pick three, or three yep. things, pick oh, two. Yeah. Or whatever. Like, you can only ever have, yeah, you like, can work only have and friends work and, and friends. Yep. Or then if you have work and friends, you can't sleep. Or if you have sleep and health, you can't work. I don't know what the deal but That always goes viral. Why yeah, does that they always, yeah. well, people click on that sort of thing. Um, but it's, it's usually not true at all. I mean, and if you look at, again, the number of hours in a week, it, it seems unlikely that you, you couldn't find like three to exercise and like two to hang out with friends and still be able to hold down a job. I mean, yeah. come on. Yeah. I very much agree with that. Yeah. And uh, Robert Valoran has done some really great work on harmonious passion, showing that you can actually live a harmoniously passionate life. You can be passionate about multiple things and have them all um, feed off each other in positive ways. Yes. Okay, we only have a few minutes left, so I want to uh, give people a chance for questions, if anybody has questions. I feel like, yeah, you, you've raised your hand first. So I am in the creative camp, like hyper-creative camp, so I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but my big problem running a creative agency these days is being able, able to hold myself accountable. So do you have any accountability hacks? I mean, I, I have, like, accountability partners are great. You know, I have um, a friend who um, it, I, it automatically emails reports to him on um, how many hours, like, I, I, like, blocked off. Like, there are certain apps that you can actually say, like, for the next two hours, I'm not going to have the Internet enabled, you know, and things like that. And then it automatically sends reports to him that I actually did that. You know, so, like like having a friend, you know, and, and automatically kind of sending these reports that is a really good way of being accountable, I find. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely um, do, a, do a plus one for that. I would also say that um, one of the best ways to keep yourself accountable is to make your to-do list very short. Um, because you're not going to do 20 things. And, and you're like, well, it wasn't that you couldn't hold yourself accountable for doing the 20 things. It's just it wasn't, it wasn't possible from the beginning. Um, but if you decide that these are the three things I absolutely need to get done today, well, that you can more readily hold yourself accountable through. I mean, three things is not that much, right? And so then you build that muscle of saying, well, whatever I actually set out to do today, I will do because it's only these three things. Uh, and as you build that up over time, it, it becomes, you know, you start viewing yourself as a more reliable person. And then you feel more successful. And then too, you feel the more the day, successful right? and yeah. feel more like you'll do it again. About reframing. Um, so one was procrastination and incubation. Um, are there any others that you find to be useful? Because we know that this affects even how the brain perceives information. Um, sort of useful uh, techniques for creativity. Reframing. Uh, reframing. I love reframing everything. <laughs> you know. Uh, you know. Um, uh, I mean, the big ones we did really cover today, the big ones, quite honestly. So um, the anxiety one, like before I'm about to give talks, you know, I used to be a terribly anxious person. Um, and I used to, and I've totally reframed that now. Like when I'm, I'm like, let's do this, you know, like, and I just like get really like pumped Like you use up. your nervousness as that energy. The feeling that of, I yeah. used to have now actually feels like excitement. And I know like I'm faking it, you know, that's not true. Like it's the same feeling I had, like the prior two years. So that was a really big one um, I found. And also, you know, I just want to re reiterate this reframing of like downtime is not like idle time is not necessarily meaningless. In fact, you know, all this research we've done, we, we've been looking at the brain of this area called the, uh, I'll call it the imagination network, which is different than the executive network I was telling you about. 
And we know that for optimal creativity, you can't just activate that executive like focus network. We need that inner stream of imagination to kind of be on call so that when someone talks about something that's interesting, that inner stream will make a connection to it. You know, like your imagination will make a connection with what you're seeing in the world. If you completely inhibit your inner stream of consciousness all the time and you're just super focused, like some of these mindfulness people who are like, every day of their life, they're like, you know, like so super focused, um, that can actually inhibit the inner stream of imagination. So I think you need both. There's a middle way as Buddha, Buddha the Buddha, it refers to the middle way. All right, I have two quick reframings. Um, one is that when you find yourself saying, I have to do X, try saying, I get to do X. Because usually it's something pretty cool, right? Like you are employed, like you're, you know, going to see family, you have a family, you have friends, like the, your community wants you to do things. This is great, right? So, so try to reframe that that way. Um, and then the one other thing is I, you know, we talked about the morning people, evening people. For most people, again, you can do a lot of stuff in the morning that you can't the rest of the day. So that involves going to bed on time. And if you ever had like bedtime battles as a kid, you might resist this idea of going to bed early. So I tell myself that going to bed early is how grownups sleep in. Yes. Oh, that is such a good hint. Co-sign that one, <laughs> A. B, um, I heard something really great on the I get, I have to, I get to framing. Um, we did an article years ago about how you talk to your kids about work and how it sets them up to view work for the rest of their lives. And it's a lot of times, I'm so sorry, I have to go to work. And then they think, oh, work's a horrible thing that grown-ups hate to do and they don't want to do it and I don't want to have to work. But if you're like... I, I get to go to work today and I get to do all of these fun things and you get to go to school and you get to do all, it's like get to, it totally reframes, you know, their thinking about what work is. All right, uh, one more question probably time for if we have one more. Thanks. So you've talked a bit about um, multitasking, which is great, and I guess realistic goal setting. Um, I guess one of the issues I have is that I head up operations for a fast-growing startup and the context switching kills me. So just... I would love a day where I only had three things on my to-do list, like just that kind of going in and out of deep work and then onto task-based things. Love to hear some hacks around context switching and kind of the toll that takes on you. Well, it's not that you only have three things to do for the day. It's that you've decided these three things are the things that absolutely have to happen, right? So if like power went out to your building at 10 a.m., what, what would you have wanted to have gotten done by that point? It doesn't mean you won't do anything the rest of the day. It's just that these are the things that we're truly going to hold ourselves accountable for. Everything else may happen, may not happen. We're going to try and get through it. We'll see. Um, but the task switching definitely is, is an issue. Um, and and for, for many people, it, some people do slightly better with quick transitions than others. I think it's another personality thing. Um, but a lot of people don't like it. Um, and, and so I think one thing you can do is try to be proactive about having at least slightly fewer of them. Um, and I've seen people actually try to do whatever big focus thing they're trying to do for the day somewhere other than their office. Like they'll come in an hour later, like if you can work at home, you know, come in an hour later, like do your thing at home, then go into work. You'll skip some of the horrible rush hour traffic too. Um, and then by the time you get to work, you can come and go with whatever, you know, it's all good. Like what happens? Cause you've already done that thing you were trying to get to. I'm learning a lot from you today. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> There's this great podcast you should listen to. <laughs> I want to thank Scott and Laura for joining us and for their expertise. And thank you for listening to our special live bonus episode of Secrets of the Most Productive People. If you want to hear more productivity myths get busted, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll be the first to hear our second season starting in January. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.